Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Eric, Lisa, and Philip live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Uh, aloha. Tonight on BC Radio Live, we plan to talk to Deborah Nelson, the author of a controversial book called The War Behind Me, Vietnam Veterans... Let me start over with that. The War Behind Me, Vietnam Veterans Confront the Truth About U.S. War Crimes. And then also tonight, we'll chat with Bob Newman about the 2008 presidential election. Today is Wednesday, the 28th of January, and this is BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, button pusher for BC Radio Live and chief geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by BC Magazine's executive editor, Lisa McKay. Hello. Hey there. And uh, let's see here. It looks like I may or may not also be joined by VC Magazine's founder and publisher, Eric Olson. Are you there, Eric? No, it doesn't look like he's been able to get in. Well, this ought to be an interesting show then. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got a we've got a couple of couple of interesting factors playing in, but we can we can go ahead and push uh, push ahead. So let me see if I can resolve some of the technical issues. Actually, I want to ask you, Lisa. Uh, you are are one of the you know what's coming, right? <laughs> You're one of the world's biggest Springsteen fans. Just one. Well, I guess I guess you could say that one of many. <laughs> one of many, and uh, the boss came out with a new album yesterday. Do you want to do you want to give us any hints as to your initial impressions? I know you, I know you're you're saving up all of your. Uh, you're saving up for a Friday review, but I wanted to make sure to give you a chance to speak. And, and while you're thinking, uh, I will introduce to the show BC Magazine's founder and publisher, Eric Olson. Welcome, Eric, finally. <laughs> yes. Hi, Philip and Lisa. What a, hey, Eric. What a, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Lisa's aware. We got about two feet of snow in the last, uh, I don't know, 12 hours or something. And we've had to just be... You know, the only time you need the snowplow people is, I don't know, when it snows! And that's when they're never, ever available. We've had to hound these people. Our house is on a on a hill, and our driveway is pretty steep. I mean, you know, you see it in the in, in the summertime, and oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's kind of sleep. But you see it in the winter, and it's, you know, it's it's ridiculous. And, I, and, and with all this snow and them not showing up, and we had to call and hound them, and I'm stuck at the end of the driveway. I, could, I couldn't even get the whole car onto the driveway. That's how bad it was. I'm sticking out, we're, and we're on a pretty major road. There's car, I almost got hit. Just a nightmare. And on top of that, three weeks to the day. Finally, we're we're not done, but at least the bodies are gone from our basement. We've had a small army of Amish men and boys in and out of our basement for three weeks. You know, it really sounds ominous when you talk about having finally managed to get bodies out of your basement, and especially with all the snow on the ground. Are these bodies still going to be, uh, you know, are they going to be found come spring? Well, they'll they'll be in in fine repair uh, at least until the snow <laughs> melts. No, it's just God. I'll tell you. You know, we're excited. You know, we're having our basement finished. That's a kind of a 
Midwestern Eastern thing, I suppose. It's not. I know it's not west, and it's it's not much south. But anyway, we had an unfinished basement, and we had a bunch of stuff down there. But it just looked awful. You know, everything's all exposed and spiders and crawling around and all this stuff. And and so we finally uh, decided to get it finished, and we got a good deal. Uh, but you know, they said it would take a week. It took three. There's just <laughs> all kinds of issues, and, you know. And your whole place. Your whole house is in disrepair because you got to move everything out of the basement while they're down there. And then nothing's quite exactly like you pictured it. And, oh, man, and there's some weird smell. We, they, we put in a half bath. There's some strange smell emanating from the new bathroom. And it hasn't even been maybe, maybe they left. Maybe they left the body behind. Well, well we don't have to get into that, but that actually happened before the toilet was even attached, which which points out certain people's unfamiliarity with plumbing. <laughs> well, I just uh, I had just asked Lisa uh, for a quick, maybe one minute uh, or ninety second report on the new Bruce, Bruce Springsteen album, and then um, while while she's giving that, Eric, perhaps you can consider uh, what to say in about twenty five minutes to introduce our second guest, since I don't have uh, much info about that. But anyway, Lisa, so new album this week. So new album. Um, you know, we're, we're probably going to be uh, running, as you said, a, a piece on it on Friday at Blog Critics, so I don't want to tip too much of my hand yet, but uh, I probably <laughs> listened to it uh, through, gosh, I don't know how many times today. I got saturated by at mid-afternoon and needed to stop. Wow. Um, I, I, that bad, I, huh? <laughs> well, you know, I really, really like some of it. I'm trying to figure some of it out, and some of it is leaving me cold. And I'm, the challenge is trying to figure out how it all hangs together thematically. Because it's stylistically it, all, all over the map. Yeah, I mean, isn't it possible that, that for once he's put out an album that doesn't quite have a unifying theme? Yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. And if I don't find what the theme is by Friday, that may be the conclusion I have. <laughs> but um, it's challenging. Very good. It's, it's you know, it's kind of interesting to watch uh, someone who's you know roughly my own age, kind of you know, taking these uh, you know musical journeys every few years to kind of you know figure out where where we're all collectively at. So it's always interesting. How did you like uh, Devils and Dust? I just got that because I, I saw it on uh, uh, the dual disc, you know, where you get the surround sound, and I'm yeah. I'm, I'm all about the surround sound. So uh, I love Devils and Dust. It's a little stark for me, but I've only listened to it once. Well, <laughs> you know, we we caught a we caught a concert on that tour. Um, just Bruce alone on the stage for two hours singing stuff from that album and doing, like, really stripped-down versions of mm -hmm. stuff from all the way back, just, you know, to nice. the beginning. And it was nice. one of the best shows I've ever seen, ever. Well, I, I was going to save this for the end of the show, but since we've been, since we started talking about concerts and music, uh, as we segue to talk to our first guest here, I'll just mention that um, I, I'm enjoying the Bruce Springsteen album, but I'm not quite the hardcore fan you are, Lisa. Uh, next week, however, I actually won't be available for the show because I will be at a concert of The Killers, uh, a, a band I try to catch every year when they're in town, or every album so far when they're in town. So uh, ne next week, you, you guys enjoy hosting the show while I'm at a concert. 
What was the last one? The Springsteen? I can't think of the name of it before this, where he's sitting there looking like a total sh- schlub. I like that one a lot. I like that yeah. one better than any going back to probably, oh, you know, mid-80s or something. Yeah, it's yeah, magic. Well, this is BC Radio Live. We're live every week at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And co-hosting with Eric and Lisa, I'm Philip. Uh, Deborah Nelson has written a book which explores one aspect of the Vietnam War, and reviews are decidedly mixed. Uh, why is that? Well, because she focused on one aspect of the war that even those who agree with her aren't really happy to read about. The book is called The War Behind Me, Vietnam Veterans Confront the Truth About U.S. War Crimes. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Deborah. Hey, thanks for having me. You're a gadfly, you gadfly. I don't think of myself as a gadfly. Is mixed a fair way to describe the reviews you've gotten? I mean, I've done a little bit of uh, digging around, and it it seems that might actually be charitable in some circles, although you've gotten also some glowing reviews, I guess. Yeah, I guess that, it depends on where you look. And uh, the New York, I got a great review in the New York Times and the Boston Globe mm-hmm. and the Seattle Times and the Chicago Reader and um, various other places. But if you look at, for example, on the Special Operations um, Association <laughs> website, you won't find such glowing reviews. Right, and Amazon has, uh, you know, the user-contributed reviews definitely, I mean, you get you get some five stars and some one stars. It all, it all seems to... Uh, to mellow out. No. Well, what I, what I find is that when you write about war crimes, if you raise the issue, that um, there is a segment of the um, population that will shout you down for even raising the issue. And it's, you know, it, it, it's been happening for 40 years. Back in, it, during the Vietnam War, uh, people who suggested that war crimes were more common than the military was letting on were shouted down as liars and fabricators. Well, now, you know, the book looks at evidence, the Army's own investigation of these crimes and confirmation of many of them. Um, And so now it's hard to argue with the facts, but uh, now the argument is why why raise it now? Why bring it up now? Why not, you know, why not? Didn't didn't the Vietnamese commit terrible crimes too? But, of course, that's not what this uh, declassified archive is about. It's about U.S. war crimes. So maybe you can describe what the uh, you know what the impetus like you mentioned the declassified archives. What what in a nutshell is it that we're we're talking about here with this book? The war behind me is based on a declassified archive of U.S. war crime reports that the Pentagon compiled during the Vietnam War. Um, you know, many of them were these are many of them are egregious accounts of murder, massacres, torture, assault, mutilation. Hundreds of these reports were confirmed, but the Army kept the findings under wraps even after the war ended. The, um, the Army began compiling these records after Cy Hirsch's expose uh, on the Milan right. Massacre in late 1969. Uh, the White House wanted to know if uh, there were any other scandals lurking, and so the Army assembled this secret task force to compile uh, and monitor any allegations of war crimes that had been reported to Army investigators across the members of Congress's desk or been the subject of a press inquiry. And that's what they did for five years, compiling about 9,000 pages of records. Um, and when the war ended, they put them away, um, and they 
remained under wraps until about 1990 when they were declassified. But um, they kind of they were declassified. They're, they're over at the National Archives, um, and it took another decade before scholars and journalists discovered them. They were just a small group that um, got onto them in about 2000. The first one being a German historian, interestingly enough. Another historian from Columbia University is the one that brought them, Nick Terse is the one who brought them to my attention when I was a Washington investigative editor at the Los Angeles Times in 2005. The government was not uh, taking out billboards about this? <laughs> no. No, they weren't. They uh, kept the findings secret. Uh, the, the, uh, as best as I can tell, um, the effort was not intended to address war crimes, prevent war crimes. It was meant to um, cover the rear of um, the administration and military leaders. So what's your, what's your general analysis, um, uh, your, your big view picture of um, how American forces in general you know, behaved in this war? Was there something different about the war? Can you do you do you have a sense of of where to compare it or how to compare it to other wars? Uh, you know where does this fit into into the uh, pantheon of of <laughs> of, uh, of conflict in terms of you know how it was fought? I know uh, you know I'm almost of that age. I'm not not quite. I had friends who were a bit older than me who were who were uh, drafted there right at the end. And um, you know, I I knew I, I, I extremely vividly. Uh, in fact, I still have nightmares about it. I was working at a, a warehouse summers um, before my freshman year of college, and then each each summer when I was in college. And that first year, there was a a, a fairly freshly returned vet uh, who was working there, and he seemed quite normal and quite cheerful guy, uh, and then as we became pals, there was about five of us or something, and of course he wasn't all that much older than we were, we we just graduated high school guys, uh, and he started bringing in pictures, and he was showing us these just appalling, stunning, gruesome pictures of what, you know, they did and others did, uh, just, you know, desecrated bodies basically, and, and we were just stunned and appalled and he he couldn't figure out why we didn't think that was just about the funniest thing going and and that certainly left an indelible mark on me anyway i've asked you about 74 questions uh in a row so please feel free to just kind of pick out any one well i think that uh, that people many people are surprised to learn that u.s soldiers do uh some of uh, you know are capable of these sorts of gruesome acts. And of course, um, we're human beings like everybody else. One thing I, I need to point out is that the records don't show that most U.S. soldiers in Vietnam committed atrocities. It does show that it was a much more, much bigger problem than the armies let on. But, um, but so, so not just one or two, but not 90%. Right. In, in fact, um, hundreds of soldiers reported war crimes, and in fact, you know, we, I, I tracked down and talked to many of them, uh, to, to many veterans, both suspects and witnesses and whistleblowers and commanders. And, and I found that many of, many of the men were angry that military leaders didn't do more to stop war crimes. Um, 
you know, most of them didn't participate. Most were, were angry. You, you asked whether this was more common in Vietnam than anywhere else, and the answer to that is we don't know. We do know that war crimes happened. They, they've happened in every war, um, but there's never, there's not been such an extraordinary compilation, you know, in all in one place um, like this one, which is why it, which is why it's just tragic that it was locked up for so long because um, the records really help understand, um, could help you understand how war crimes happen, you know, what the conditions are that lead to them. Um, and in this case, you have a counterinsurgency operation where you're, you know, where you're sending soldiers into populated areas, much like we're doing in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, where it's hard to identify the enemy. And so you get frustrated, and some members of foreign forces can be expected to take those frustrations out on innocent civilians because that's who's in front of them. Um, and that's what makes counterinsurgency operations really, uh, um, you know, really difficult, both uh, morally difficult, morally treacherous, uh, lethal for, for civilians, and also very difficult to win um, because, in fact, some of the retired generals I talked to who, uh, who helped keep these records secret now believe the information needs to get out because they thought when they left the Pentagon that, the, that we'd never get involved in another counterinsurgency operation like Vietnam. When we went to Iraq, they realized that the public didn't know what happens in these kinds of conflicts. Um, so they supported, they actually were big supporters of this book coming out. Interesting. So uh, do do you, uh, just off the top of your head then, I mean, do you have a sense um, or an opinion of, of where Vietnam fits in? I mean, it sounds, it seems to me, uh, to compare to Iraq, for example, which is, is, is as you say, is, is an apt comparison in, in uh, several ways, uh, I mean, Iraq in, comes off squeaky clean, it seems like, by comparison. In other words, I think we've perhaps learned some lessons, and there's some there's some big some big differences. It's a volunteer army; it's not a draft army. People are older; they're better trained. Um, it's been ta- I, I think um, you know the, it's the difficulties of a counterinsurgency have been have been taken more seriously this time. I mean, do, do those things make sense? I mean, do you see those differences there? Uh, well, first of all, it took us 40 years to find out uh, what was what really happened in Vietnam. Um, so we don't know uh, what happened, what's happened in Iraq. And, you know, the nation has done some reporting, and Salon has done some reporting that indicates that um, – you know that civilian killings are a, a much more significant problem than, again, than the armies owned up to. When we first went into Iraq, we were operating, we were making the same mistakes that we made in Vietnam. Um, you know, using body count as a measure of success. It's neither an effective measure of success, um, nor uh, it's not a me- it's not an effective measure of success, and it encourages killing of civilians, and in fact, there's a, there was a pretty high-profile case uh, involving snipers who killed civilians and attributed it to the pressure to produce body count. Um, you know, we just read Woodward just had a piece talking about Bush's demand to know 
demand for a body count. Um, he clearly had and not read these records. Or, 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 yeah. Now, that, I have to say that Petraeus has adopted a different philosophy. It's taken several years, and there's several years where he sacrificed both our lives and and uh, Iraqi lives um, before we before we learn those lessons. But um, you know, he has taken a different approach. He 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 uh, revised the counterinsurgency manual to give the benefit of doubt to civilians in intense situations. Now, whether that's being carried out in the ground is another question. And I mean, another another place where we don't see the military learning the lessons of uh, Vietnam is in Afghanistan, where we're using firepower uh, in killing civilians, not admitting that we're, that civilians have been killed, contesting it, and then months later having to admit that, in fact, you know, we fired into areas that were full of civilians and killed civilians. Now, what that does is that it turns the population against us, turns the population against the government that we're supporting there. And if you look in today's paper, in this morning's paper, there's discussion about how, um, you know, we can't use, the, the military can't, the U.S. military cannot um, win the battle for Afghanistan's soul, that it really has to be Afghanistan that does it, that our military might is just going to continue to uh, breed hostility um, in the population there because we were killing civilians in our effort to find the Taliban. And Seymour Hersh, who, as you mentioned, was involved in first bringing the, uh, some of the atrocities in Vietnam to light, was also involved in the reporting from Abu Ghraib prison. Yes, he was. And it's interesting because it really was his, it was his reporting that resulted in this extraordinary um, archive of war crime records from Vietnam. Um, it was you know, his expose that prompted the military to begin uh, gathering this information together. So we, we we have him to thank and uh, for for being able to look at it today. It's just too bad that that um, this information wasn't made public and wasn't even, or wasn't analyzed to any degree by the military back in the 1970s. The lessons that so many soldiers tried to pass on, the lessons learned, um, weren't passed on until just now, just in the last couple of years, as this information has become public. So back to to the reaction. Um, what kinds of people um, just don't want to hear about it? What is it? Is it? Can you can you typify the kind of person who just doesn't want to be troubled with such things? Um, because that seems to be a fairly common response. To, you know, why, why do you have to bring this up now? Why do you have to open old wounds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Et cetera? Well, you know, the, the heart and soul of the book are, are the interviews with people who were in the, in the files. And um, I was somewhat surprised, not entirely, to find that most of them were willing to talk. Um, and this many years later, and for, for many of them, um, it was almost a relief to have somebody calling uh, that knew their secret, because so many of them had kept this a secret. You know, they were kind of – they were – they were intimidated into silence by both the left and the right. You know, if they if they talked about what they witnessed, um, the left would see them as they feared the left would see them as baby killers. They feared the right would call them liars. Um, 
so the relief to to be able to talk about it to somebody who had seen the army files and to find out that in fact the army had investigated the allegations and backed them up um, but I can't say that the suspects from the files uh, were happy to hear from me uh, they certainly weren't and um, and it's been really a mixed reaction from from veterans and it's hard to predict um, what kind of reaction I'm going to get. There, there isn't anything stereotypical. You know, the, those who were outraged over war crimes they witnessed come from across the political spectrum, conservatives to liberal. Um, but I have to say that, you know, there, there are some people that think this, this should not be addressed whatsoever. Um, and... You know, I, I just believe it, and why bring it up now? You know, I, I, I heard from a battalion commander whose company massacred 19 civilians in Quang Nam province. You know, why bring this up now? He kept telling me that I should find myself a respectable job. <laughs> well, well, first of all, you know... Did you I, mention that you're a Pulitzer? <laughs> well, you know, that's nice to bring up because people always <laughs> accuse you of, you know, they always accuse investigative journalists of, you know, pursuing whatever story they're pursuing to win a Pulitzer, and it's nice to be able to say, been there, done that. That's not my motive here. Um, but, you know, first of all, it's not an issue that's been laid to rest, I mean, that, which we saw in the 2004 election with John Kerry, where his 1971, the Swift voters came after him for his 1971 testimony that, war, that atrocities were day-to-day -day occurrences. Um, when, in fact, a couple of days after he gave that testimony the, in these files, uh, I found, a, you know, we found a memo that shows that shortly after his testimony, the White House wanted, wanted to know what other allegations had been reported and what their status was. And the Army sent up a 25-page list and include many of the same allegations, same types of uh, atrocities that Kerry was talking about. But... You know, as a journalist, I think we have to write the truth about our government whenever it reveals itself. Whether it's a few days or a few dec decades later, it's just what we do. It's, it's our job. And that, you know, if you don't, if to do otherwise gives the government this incredible incentive to hide critical information about itself from the public. Um, well, and, well and, and as you've said, the conduct of war our conduct of war especially recent war i mean you know in the big picture what's 40 years i mean that's that's not that long ago um you know uh and, and that's certainly the biggest war of of the last generation of 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 the last couple of generations uh the the conduct of that war is very relevant to all subsequent wars and uh we do have to learn from our mistakes and we have to learn you know, certainly there's psychological aspects, there's emotional aspects, there's things that the military command can do better to diffuse the the impulse to to uh, commit these atrocities. I would think, and yeah, no, I back back to what you're saying about Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, for that matter. I, I I certainly didn't mean to imply that nothing has happened, but it seems to me that. Um, the coverage is is we we'd be here we do hear about it i mean we hear about it when these things come up and their people have been tried and you know i, I didn't mean to apply that 
that these things aren't happening. It, it just seems to be on a much lower scale. And unless there's a massive cover-up going on, when, like you say, who knows? Maybe it'll take 40 years to find that out. But it just seems like the world we live in today is so much. It's so much harder to cover things up and keep them covered up with the internet, with <laughs> bloggers. <laughs> That's us. And uh, you know, investigative journalists such as yourself, and on and on and on, and and uh, you know, in, in every in every medium, you know, there's TV, there's radio, there's there's the internet, there's publications, there's you know, on and on and on. It just seems like today uh, it's harder to keep these kinds of things covered up than it was in Vietnam, where you're fighting in the jungle. And, uh, you know, it's very confusing. There's various players. There's lots going on. Uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what the the journalistic situation was then. I mean, I know there were people certainly there covering it, and I have indelible pictures in my mind, you know, of seeing TV coverage. But I, I, I can't imagine that that the current wars aren't more thoroughly covered, uh, you know, than, than this one was. Oh, they certainly are not more thoroughly covered. In fact, um, uh, I mean, the, certainly there, there are fewer, we have fewer soldiers involved in these wars than we did um, in Vietnam. The scale, but in right. Term, the scale is different. However, um, if you're looking at rates, we don't, we don't know that. And, and in fact, um, you know, the, the just, just as in Vietnam, and even more so, the press doesn't have access to, um, you know, soldiers in combat and in dangerous places. Uh, you know, many, many media companies have been pulling their reporters out of those areas. There are very few reporters uh, left covering them because um, there have been so many layoffs in the news industry and because the economy and other things have taken our, have um, distracted us from from those wars. Uh so certainly, reporters are not do not have any more. In fact, there's been there have been a lot of complaints from reporters who have gone to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, that they don't have access. And while the terrain may be different, it is you know just as precarious. And our soldiers are in, in just as precarious situations. Um, you know where you're going into communities where you know people are not happy you're there. You can't tell the enemy um, easily. Uh, you're getting shot at by somebody you can't see, um, and so there's a temptation, you know, to aim your guns at who you at who you can see. There, you know, what's in, what was interesting to me in, in looking through these records is um, how many cases were reported by the press, um, not the press doing on the ground reporting in Vietnam, but rather reporting what soldiers were saying when they came back at press conferences. You know, the Vietnam veterans against the war. Stories ran inside the paper, but when I talk to people, even people in the military, they don't remember those stories. They remember me lie. They remember the Green Berets case and a couple others. But whether they were just not reading them, whether they didn't remember them, they didn't care, they're paying more attention to how many lives, U.S. lives are lost, I, I'm not sure um, why that is. So you, So you don't think really that things have changed all that much? I don't know. You know, I haven't investigated um, the Iraq War and the Afghan and, and the war in Afghanistan, and I don't think many reporters have. In Vietnam, 
Kevin Buckley was one of the rare reporters that, when he was at Newsweek who went in on the ground and went from town to town, um, to hospital, you know, hospitals, talked to local villagers, talked to military officials, and documented that civilians um, were being killed in the thousands and being reported as any enemy combatants being killed in action. Um, it's, it's very rare, it was rare then for a reporter to go out and do that independent sort of reporting that needs to be done, and it's, it's rare now, too. There are some exceptions, but not many. So the bottom line is we don't know. And, um, you know, I, I, hope that that, I, I hope that we don't have to wait 40 years to find out what happened because maybe if we had known, you know, what war is about, what war is really about, if we had known about um, these cases and the extent of this problem, maybe, maybe that would have been one factor, one more factor that would have discouraged us from going in, into Iraq um, or in any war unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, you know, Michael Miner writes for the Chicago Reader, uh, in, and uh, he said, uh, uh, you know, when will this reporting matter? He was writing about the book, but he's also writing about more. His, his, the subject was a book, but he, he really wrote a column more about war crimes in Vietnam and our reluctance to accept um, that they happened. Um, you know, he said, when will this reporting matter? When will what it tells us become part of what we all know about war? And I guess, I guess that's my hope, is that it, this becomes part of what we all know about war. That is a, that is a compelling thought, and I think that, um, I, I think every generation actually needs to, to remember or learn again that war is hell, and uh, no matter how much technology or, or how far away we, we make it or how much technology we throw at it, it's still hell. People still die, and people put in those situations. Um, you know, they still do bad things. Even, even if it turns out that in the current war, the, the worst there is has already been reported at Abu Ghraib, that still is, is far and away beyond what I think most Americans would have thought or believed uh, American troops were capable of, in part because, like you said, they, they never learned about, we never learned about what, uh, what happened in Vietnam. So the my book is uh my daughter just finished reading the things they carried by tim o'brien uh, for high school and um and you know it really opened her her eyes to what um to what war is about and i think we do have to educate this generation and every generation i think you're right right well the book is called the war behind me vietnam veterans confront the truth about u.s war crimes uh it does feature some some pretty in-depth reporting as you've heard and it is available now well thank you so much for talking with us tonight deborah Hey, well, thank you for having me, and would, would you, I'd like to urge people to visit the website. Please. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Warbehindme.com, and uh, appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Hey, well, it's very thought-provoking, and, and uh, it's real real important stuff. And, and uh, I mean, I completely agree with you. It doesn't matter what your view is on any given war or the merits of that war. This is information that always needs to be available because people really do need the whole picture. I mean, how, how can a sanitized view of war be helpful? I, it's just, I, it, it's other than, I guess, for propaganda, and maybe that's what some people, that's all they care about. But, um, you know, anyone with a, anyone who cares about reality and, and has a grasp of, uh, wants a grasp of the truth, this kind of stuff may be really painful, but is, 
that much more important because it is. Amen. So thank you. Thank you. He will thank you. Okay, have a good evening. Well, BC Radio Live is a production of blogcritics.org and is broadcast weekly at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And with Eric and Lisa, I'm Philip. Our next guest, Bob Newman's hand, is all over the show that you wouldn't actually know it. He founded Newman Communications, and his company helps us find many of the guests you hear on the show each and every week. Including Uh, Deborah. Including Deborah. Uh, Bob has been a reporter, a columnist, and I'm told he loves to talk politics. So welcome to BC Radio Live, Bob. How are you guys tonight? We are excellent, although I am snowed in and I'm sick of it. Where Where is snow? I am in uh, Cleveland, and man, we had about two feet. I am snowed in uh, outside, outside of Hartford, Connecticut tonight. Uh, well, you're near Lisa. I'm I'm on the shoreline and uh, ours got washed away by rain this afternoon. Oh, you're oh. lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, tonight, what is it? Uh, tell me what you think about the uh, the 2008 presidential election. Have you ever seen anything like it? No, I mean the 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 2008 presidential election proved uh, one thing, and it proved that you can win an election if you are all about PR, and if to some degree you lack, uh, you lack substance. Now, that is not an indictment of Obama to say he lacked substance at all, but what Ob- Obama got elected um, because of the image of Obama. Obama got elected because of the poor image that the Republicans uh, and especially the, uh, the Bush White House had. Obama didn't get elected based on what the Americans, uh, whether they be the Republicans, the Democrats who are 50-50, or those independents who were supposed to sway in those swing states. He didn't get elected based on what any of them believe and think. Americans will sway back and forth to right and left. He got elected for similar reasons that Bush got elected the two the two terms before, but in a far more aggressive way. I mean, by far from the financial standpoint and from the image standpoint as well as from the press standpoint because clearly whether you're from the right or the left you'll accept the notion that Barack Obama did co-opt the press and as a result he really what he needed to do during the campaign and he's continued to do it to some degree in the transition and subsequently in these first couple of uh, weeks is He needed to appear to the American public that he was a leader. He needed to appear to the American public that he was likable, as Bush had done before. And finally, he needed to appear to the American public that if, on the one hand, he couldn't necessarily solve the problems, he at least could appropriately talk about them and get others together, you know, his administration uh, to do that. And, you know, this this was remarkable in that you not only had, you know, the, the first African-American uh, pre, uh, pre- elected president and, and before that in his party, and at the same time you had the first woman who, who competed there uh, at his party, uh, you know, with, with Obama, but... More importantly, 
I think what was so remarkable after money, the number one thing, was the involvement of all Americans. And, you know, not only Americans who wanted change, but Americans who wanted some part of this process. And as a result, Obama has been turned into someone that, A, he may not be, and that, B, and I apologize for going on, the expectations are just so high at this point. So he continues with the public relations plan that he has, but at this point, give him uh, the first 100 days and give him six months. At that point, the American public will look away from public relations and will demand substance. Interesting. What are your thoughts on on his um, his his army, his assembled army, and uh, the organizational skills now involved in in carrying it over uh, into into governance, bringing this organization, this uh, uh, online, primarily you know, people's uh, army for Obama, and and then uh, mobilizing them not just for the election, but now moving forward into governance. That's that's unprecedented. No, no, and, and this, you know, very simply, this comes from a man who still wants to carry his BlackBerry, a man who who, who lives by YouTube. Um, he knows that this group, you know, that he is bringing on may not necessarily have any impact in governance, but they will have impact in getting him reelected in four years and that this group will have impact in at least on a day-to-day basis in the media who is poll-driven, keeping things positive. And that's what he will use them for um, during times in which we're involved with a traumatic war in this country, you know, in, with the economy, and a number of wars. They talk about two in Afghanistan and Iraq, but you know we have the one in the Middle East, and we also have tremendous problems throughout Africa and uh, in Asia that we have to uh, we have to battle not only with Al Qaeda but also uh, in terms of where we stand in our reputation and where we stand in terms of economy. So he will get this group that he will marshal their efforts through a continuous campaign for the next four years, and we will see if it goes on for eight years, to to remain positive and to be his soldiers in these communities because, as he knows, it's all about public relations, and public relations will, A, uh, be seen in the polls, and B, be seen in in the nightly news, not far off what Ronald Reagan did, which was sitting down once a day with his staff, Michael Deaver, Jim Baker, Bill Clark, and Ed Meese, and saying, what do we want on TV for that five minutes? Obama, the Obama administration has so many aspects of its day-to-day choreographed. Look at tonight. Obama knows that no Republican voted positively on the stimulus package at the House. But he has all the cable networks focusing on a cocktail party he's hosting after that vote for, in large part, Republicans from the House. And so, you know, he... He, will, he himself will be the comforter-in-chief for us, and he will have his legions out there 
who for a long time will keep things going, but I don't believe if the economy continues to tank as it is. You know, I, I actually wrote a blog piece recently that was very, I think was, uh, and, and I don't pat myself on the back often, but this I really enjoyed. It basically talked about during the transition how every time um, someone would look at Obama and say, tell us about the Middle East. He'd say there was one president. He couldn't talk about it. They'd say, let's talk about the question of, uh, of Leon Panetta. And he would, uh, he would say, and, and Dianne Feinstein's opposition, he'd say, listen, I'd like to move on and talk about the economy. Um, someone would ask him about Bill Richardson's nomination, and he'd say, we really have to get to jobs. Let's not focus on people. And to Obama at this point, the economy, despite how poor it is, despite how sad it is at the job losses every day, from the Home Depots to the, uh, to the Sprints yesterday, he actually believed that the economy is a gift to him in his presidency because, A, it can't get much lower, B, he, anything he does will make it better, I believe. And, and, and lastly, it's something he doesn't have to take responsibility for at this point, and you will see in his public relations. And, and you know, the first, his first thing he was going to do when we talked about this last year was he was going to tell you things were worse than they are. And he's done that. And the second thing he will do is constantly remind you of who really put us in this position, according to, to him. So the public relations, I mean, we're talking literally every hour or two during the day in which there is an Obama show. Spoke for 15 or 20 minutes today at a, uh, at a gathering of business leaders uh, that include the, included the uh, Google head. He then did a public business function. He then met with the Joint Chiefs for two hours and then came out and, and in, in, uh, on CNN and MSNBC and Fox, shook hands with hundreds of officers and talked about what dedicated servants they were. Um, again, this is the Obama that we're going to see as time goes on. And the question is, will what really governance that you're talking about, really leadership is, the making of hard decisions, will he be able to make that transition um, over from the politics? Because for many years he has not made hard decisions. And this is really a test not only for our country, not only for leadership, but especially for him. And I don't expect that group necessarily to help him. The second thing that, that has been very important is it has been remarkable who he has put in charge of government, not necessarily a large change from the Clinton era or the Bush era. Um, he, has, he has really brought in you know, government regulars who know what they're doing and can hit the ground running. And lastly, he has brought in, in large part, except for his domestic policy advisor, he has brought in uh, many moderates, the Larry Summers and Christine Romers uh, on that side are moderates. Mrs. Clinton and uh, General Jim Jones are moderates on the, uh, on the foreign policy side. And so what Obama is doing is he started writing a book at the beginning of the campaign. 
He is a writer, and he is trying to craft a story, a story that first goes on for four years, a story that goes on then for eight years. And, and he is already looking to the end of the story, and he wants it to end well. Wow. That was a well-crafted chapter you just presented that was that was really impressive you know and my apologies talk... for, go, for, for going on first of all it is it's not in depth but there's a lot to it to bring in the can you know from the campaign on and secondly i i am passionate about seeing this and i will tell you i'm passionate about giving him credit for it but i'm terribly worried because as a public relations person I clear and, and as a business person, I know this world is not all about you know public relations. Now Reagan did a good job with it, Clinton did a good job with it, Bush did not do a good job with it, but we really are in a place in our country, simply said, um, from the domestic side especially, and even on the foreign policy side, that is at such a low at this point that this country needs a decision maker. And his first foray into decisions, looking at the package he put forth in the House that was passed entirely by Democrats today, and I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, but I'm a little embarrassed for him at what he put out there in terms of that being a stimulus package. And what I'm hoping for is that it isn't as business as usual. I will tell you one other thing that has really saddened me in the last couple of days. He put forth in his first day in the administration a set of guidelines that, uh, about lobbying, okay, and uh, that you couldn't be a lobbyist uh, or you know, have previously lobbied in these certain areas if you were going to come into government. And he already multiple times has asked for waivers on his own guidelines. Now, he didn't have to set these guidelines, but these guidelines appeared to me to be a large public relations show if he is not now standing by them and saying, my deputy defense secretary has been lobbying the Pentagon for Raytheon for years, um, and now I want, to, uh, I want to bring him in here. It was okay to bring him in because this is someone the deputy defense secretary knows about procurement. It's fine. Just don't tell us that things are going to be different. Just don't tell us you know, that, it's, uh, that we're going to be pushing out lobbyists if you're constantly going to be doing that. So there's one thing that's the show, and the Obama show climbing out of the heavens in Colorado has continued in, uh, in the first weeks of the administration. The other side is I hope we see him develop into a great young leader, because otherwise I think our enemies abroad will take advantage of us, and then in this country, I think people will go into a real low in terms of the, the economic side. Um, listen, he, he's, he's got all the pizzazz in the world. He spent five minutes on TV today talking about snow days for his kids in Washington. People love this shtick. They just think it's good. But give it two or three months, guys, because if it's not happening in potentially six months, our country is going to go into a real tailspin if we don't have a leader. I'm actually greatly amused by the case you laid out so far, in part because I wrote an article for Blog Critics a couple of months, I think it was, before election night, uh, basically laying out somewhat the same case that, you know, uh, there's talk and then there's do, and, and I, I had severe doubts whether the, the do could line up with the talk. And, and, you know, the examples that you're talking about in terms of, uh, 
you know, hiring lobbyists after saying that there would be no lobbyists and so on. Um, those those pretty well line up with <laughs> with what I predicted, and I, I I still like him. I hope that he can, as you've suggested, you hope, uh, you know, that he can he can transition into actually making those decisions and keeping people, you know, on his side. Because right now that's that's America's side. You know, he's our he's our president. And I, th I think we all like him. I, I really do. This is an extremely likable man who is not the man that the conservatives put out there. He isn't, you know, Bill Ayer's friend, and he isn't, you no. know, somebody who is going to try to destroy our military-industrial complex, and he's not somebody who is going to go for a radical redistribution of wealth. What he is is he's a liberal, but he is very practical, and he knows what he needs to do to get government running. I just don't know if he knows what he needs to do to do the next two steps, which is the change he promoted and the major uh, you know, upheaval, a positive upheaval that has to be done in this country on the economic side um, to get things going. To put out a package, guys, that the first pack, economic stimulus package that went out there, and these economic stimulus packages are ridiculous in and of themselves, but the first one that went out there had the majority of money being spent uh, two or three years from now. And I think they've tweaked that in the last number of days. But to him, it was getting it out. To him, it was getting it passed. To him, it was getting – I think he really does believe that if people feel good about things, they will then go out and, and do. And let's hope his philosophy works. But I think with an economy that is tied to a banking industry that's failing, an investment industry that is corrupt, a retail industry that is failing, and a, uh, and a car industry as well as a, a production uh, industry that is going overseas, it isn't just about feeling good. And he does a great job at that. He does a great job at the daily shows that he seems to do. I think he has the tools, but and maybe what he's trying to do is, you know, to some degree use a uh, use a banking term. He's trying to kite himself, you know, like kite a check. He's trying to do it for about three to four months, hoping things get better. Well, I think the timing, as you've said, um, is is to his advantage in that you know things are are, are pretty low uh, coming in to the beginning of his administration. He has the uh, ability to uh, he has the Reagan-esque. Uh, he's in the Reagan-esque situation of being able to you know Teflon off any blame for this, uh, and, and he's he does have. A period of uh, he has a grace period that he can operate within where people won't necessarily be expecting immediate results in terms of uh, people want to see results in terms of things like passing legislation, which happened today. But but I think they're they're intelligent enough and and uh, big-minded enough to realize that this kind of thing you know certainly takes time in terms of seeing big sweeping changes uh, and to see the results of of these various activities but uh i i he i agree with you he we're the we we uh, as a nation are the kind of people it's very uh, the the kind of the pop culture side of it is very revealing where we love 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 to build people up build people up kind of kind of hop on the train and follow it as far as it'll go and then Bury them, 
you know, the, the discover the feet of clay and bury them. Now we're also magnanimous enough that we're we're happy enough to bring people back if if they behave properly once we've crushed them. <laughs> we love uh, comebacks. We, we're real big on comebacks. But uh, I, I I too fear that with this this wave of euphoria and and those images going out from the uh, <clears throat> excuse me from. Washington D.C. You know, a couple weeks ago is all now, uh, and, and the fact that you know an entire nation has has rallied around this guy, even people who didn't vote for him. You know, the approval ratings and 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 we like him ratings were something like seventy percent uh, on inauguration day. Anyway, um, I, I I fear that we're setting this guy up, uh, you know, for a huge fall. And it could happen very precipitously, very much like the economy, by the way, you know, uh, if he doesn't produce. So uh, like you, like pretty much everyone, I think, almost everyone, I'm sure there's those who, who wish him, don't wish him well, at least politically. But, uh, you know, certainly as leader of the nation, uh, the great majority of people realize their self-interest lies with him, with him doing well. Uh, you know, I, I just hope that he uh, can produce enough on, on the you know the real results level that we don't that we don't react that way that kind of predictable way that we do against so many people uh, again particularly within pop culture but uh, you know that can carry over because look what a pop culture figure he is and and, and by the way you know he's starting to believe his own headlines. The public relations plan is multifaceted. Let's make him look like the great dad. I mean, his wife's complaining about the kids being out there, but he keeps talking about them on TV. Let's make him look like the great conciliator with the with the Republican Party. They just they just uh, hurt me, but I'm bringing them to to a cocktail party. Let's let him look like the uh, the calmer in chief. I mean, Pelosi and uh, and Reed are despicable human beings, and he is the antidote to them. I mean, they may be good at what they do. I may agree with some of what they do, but they don't come across well. But lastly, Obama's plan is now going to extend it. You saw it, guys, two nights ago. He chose not CBS or ABC or NBC or Blog Talk. He chose Arab television to go on as his first interview uh, since becoming uh, president. I don't dismirch him for that. But the next thing he will do is do a major address, not in, in, in front of the, same, uh, the amount of people who were in Germany, not in front of the amount of people who were, you saw 100,000 in St. Louis and over 100,000 in Denver. He will get them in Indonesia, where he spent some time in an Arab nation, he will get hundreds of thousands to come out. And what he, he now believes is, if he can't win all hearts in the United States, he will overcome that by winning all hearts in the world because he really does believe he is this mythic figure at this point. He believes his, his, uh, his headlines. He believes, too, that no matter what, either A, he has co-opted the press, the chills up my you know, leg, uh, Chris Matthews, uh, the Keith Olbermans, he believes he has either co-opted them, and if... He, he believes they go against him, okay? 
there is something he will begin to do that many in his party have done for years, which is he will just look out and say, I'm not going to answer it. And at that point, Obama the dad will come out that day. Obama the, the Democratic leader will come out that day. Obama the conciliatory will come out that day. Or Obama the world leader will come out. And so... He is a guy, he's like this family guy, and I've never thought of this until now. The psychology is, well, I'll get these two or three on my side, and when they move away from me, I'll move to, you know, the guy who doesn't talk to his mother for years. Um, and I talk to mine every day, but the guy who doesn't talk to his mother, he then, you know, talks to the other three in the family. And then he moves over and he talks to mom, but he doesn't talk to the others. And Obama will continue to do that and keep all balls in the air first to four years to get reelected, and then I believe during the second term he will really try to make his stamp on government, whether it be in the judiciary or whether it be in terms of regulation and policy uh, where he moves. And this is basically um, PR 24-7, but PR that you guys can relate to, which is more based on you know, the Internet community and, and the blogger community. Um, right. he, he, I couldn't believe that he chose two days before the inauguration to go to dinner with who? Conservative columnists, George Will, Charles Krausheimer, that, that group, because what he was trying to do is, is, is not only win them over, but if he couldn't win them over, at least say out there that he's open to hearing new ideas. So we have really never seen this type of, uh, this type of president as a leader. And what he, what he is, is not only the leader, not only the politician, but somebody who knows how to do it in today's 24-hour, 24-7 media culture and today's Internet blog culture. So he really is, you know, a great focus for, for you all for the next uh, number of years. Well, we've, uh, we've actually run out of time, and we've just hit what we call the after show, where we've lost our live listeners, and only archive listeners will hear this. But, but I actually have one last question for you, despite that. Um, and, and that is, you know, you, you've made many references to Obama as, as really a, a PR president so far, uh, and Reagan and Clinton before him doing well at that, and, and perhaps that's one of, of President Bush's biggest failings, in fact, uh, is that he, um, as, as, I, as I used to say as a supporter of President Bush, even when he does the right things, he doesn't explain why, and so nobody thinks he did the right thing. So I guess what I'm asking you is, what do you, I mean, is, is this a good thing or a bad thing that, that we judge our presidents maybe more than more on their, their PR ability than, than on their actual accomplishments? Or, or is that overstating what, what you're saying? Well, no, I don't, I don't think it's overspeaking at all. I mean, the, the bottom line was, did you want to have a Coke with George Bush or Al Gore, and you wanted to have it with George Bush? You, and, and because he didn't drink alcohol. And did you want to have a Coke with George Bush or John Kerry? You wanted to uh, have one with him. People still judge the, the, those two elections on the same thing, but he really didn't care about the after. I mean, this was a man who clearly... And actually, him and Obama weren't that different. I mean, Obama used to go back to his apartment and, and not socialize with anyone in Washington. He now knows he has to do it. Bush 
didn't really care. Uh, he 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 Bush really believed he was moved a by his God and b by his integrity and strength of character in terms of the decisions he made. And I give him a lot of credit for all of those. Um, so America, in a PR sense, you know, looked down upon him because he didn't embrace America. He, he gave up after six months embracing Washington, D.C., and uh, after that six months, the 9-11 hit, and he really had his calling. Um, do I think it's good or, or, or bad that, uh, that, that we do this? It's what we need as a, as a country, uh, what we needed as a country in terms of the election. It's what we needed in terms of the, the aftermath and the making us feel good. It's what we needed in this country to try and blunt some of the criticisms of what this country was like in terms of civil rights. But um, I think if we continue to do this down the line and judge this incoming administration by you know, PR and transparency and, and, and those ideas, you might have uh, you might have some problem um, in that you're not necessarily judging it based on integrity and strength of character and somebody who can stand up to the to the world community. I think he has to be half the half Clinton and uh, and Reagan and then half Bush two and I mean uh, Bush two uh, number two. Um, and he will be a phenomenal president. Uh, but I, I think if we judge it solely on PR, the lowest common denominator, I think we're doing ourselves a, a huge disservice. And, and that's saying it against, you know, basically what, what I do every